Hello, everybody. Welcome back into your latest episode of Locked On Suns, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Today, as always, your host, Evan Sider, and my co host, Brennan Clean. You can follow me on Twitter at East Sider. You can follow Burn on Twitter at Burn and Clean 14. This far, our Locked On Suns Twitter page, you and I at Locked On PHX Suns. Your support liver is very much appreciated, as always. And, Brennan, I'll let you introduce today's guest and today's episode, a very awesome and special one, in my opinion. And we have a very awesome guest for that. Yeah, with the Kobe Bryant passing on, on Sunday. We, we talked a little bit about it that day. I, I don't know if we how good of a job we did, Evan. It was a little bit raw at that point, re- recapping games and trying to squeeze our thoughts in there. But we wanted to dedicate a little bit more time to a guy who had a ton, I mean, the same division as the Suns and, and a lot of memories throughout the years, uh, a lot of them positive for the Suns, which not a lot of teams can say. But to go through all of that, we wanted to bring on somebody who was right there for all of it, which is Paul Coro, beat writer at the time for the Arizona Republic, covered pretty much every big Kobe versus the Suns moment that there was through the years during the seven seconds or less era. So, uh, Paul, I, I want to start with just your, as a guy who was there up close, got to see this guy play for so long, your reaction on Sunday when the the surprising news dropped that, that this guy had passed away with his, his daughter and, and friends. Yeah, I, I, I felt like, just pretty much like anybody else that day. I had a friend text me <laughs> looking for confirmation that it was true, which was <laughs> sort of funny to me. I'm like, I'm not, an, <laughs> I'm not an NBA reporter that confirmed this, so I'm Googling it like everybody else. And then I was just absolutely aghast. And, and then it just came in waves after that because then you learn about his daughter. And, you know, as a father, like I, I remember just a um, couple of weeks before that sharing with my daughters that video that was going around of them talking sideline to each other. And it was like, you know, my, my older daughter played basketball and it, it just resonated with me. And, you know, from that point on, it was, I had a lot, a lot of flooding memories coming back about covering them, but then all of a sudden I was thinking more as the father and the family. And then I was also thinking about all my colleagues in Los Angeles that I've known very well over I did it 13 years so and there's a lot of media in LA and those people were the ones that spent thousands of days around them and I was thinking in my head it would be how would I feel if like something god forbid happened to Nash you know and and, you know these guys aren't friends but they're people that you become extremely familiar with yeah I mean I I think the the connection that Evan and I have is covering Devin Booker on a day-to-day basis and a guy that, that had the connections he had to, to Kobe and somebody who's on a, a record sheet that not many people are right next to Kobe with his 70 point game. And I think that's all something that will, that will connect those two guys. But yeah, I mean, just the amount of, it's the type of journalism you don't want to read, but the people who have been able to honor him by, by, by reliving those memories, I think, Howard Beck's piece and Bleacher Report was incredible, and, and there's been just so many over the, over the past few days. But um, is there was there a memory, Paul, that that stuck back out to you as you just thought about the the, the on court and the the battles and the just years and years of this guy dominating the league? Was there was there something your brain went to of a memory that that stood out? Well, you know, you try to think of something that's different from everybody else's because, of, of course, you think about the 06 series and the 10 conference finals and his last game in Phoenix and, uh, you know, all those things. But then I was thinking about when I was a rookie, basically, Suns reporter in 04, 
and it was following the free agency year where he was a free agent and Nash was a free agent. And the Suns, of course, had quickly signed Nash, but there was always this buzz that they had been interested in Kobe and hadn't possibly gone after him, but, you know, never confirmed it uh, because they just wanted to be kind of look as, as if they were all in on Nash at the time. And I remember the Suns played the uh, Lakers preseason in Las Vegas, and I'm pretty sure it was probably a night he wasn't even playing because it was preseason, or maybe he was because it was Vegas since their second home. But anyway, I remember waiting in a hallway and Thomas and Matt trying to time it for when he came out because it, and it was because I was trying to get him away because I knew he would never acknowledge it in a pack. And I remember stopping him in a hallway one-on-one outside media availability time. And he uh, acknowledging the fact that, yeah, the Suns had, you know, kicked the tires on him and checked in. And he was actually making it like, yeah, but I think they had their hearts set on Nash all along when, you know, we all know he had his mindset on the Lakers all along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think, Paul, just looking back on the years, and you've covered the Suns and Lakers rivalry really through its heyday, and just looking back at Kobe the player, just what stood out to you most about just watching him up close and the way he played compared to others? Yeah, I think a lot of it was seeing um, the measured moves that you realize as a basketball person just take tens of thousands of repetitions to learn and how he did everything so smoothly and graceful, and there was no holes in his game. He had every single skill. There wasn't something he didn't do. He defended well because of how um, he played through pain. You know, um, he was, he was, he'd have to, you'd hear about the workouts, you know, off season twice a day for hours. And then I get to, you know, I got to know people that had been in his life and, how you, you just hear how focused and relentless he was about uh, getting every single edge. And he was very private and uh, very personal and with his family, same way. So it was hard for everybody, to, anybody to really feel like they knew him during that time. Um, and then the 180 of him kind of creating the second act of being an affable dad. <laughs> mm-hmm. It sounds like, I mean, if you had that experience with him in Vegas and, and whatnot, that what, 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 like, was he a tough guy to cover? Was he, I mean, he had, he's the type of star that's going to, you know, he's going to talk, he's going to do a press conference after every meaningful game. He's going to be the spokesperson for the team, but what kind of, what was it like just to, to be around the, the media circus of, of the Lakers and covering him, covering his big games and all that over the years? Yeah, well, he was always so mature behind his, beyond his years, and he never dodged media. He understood the responsibilities, and he, I always thought he was charismatic and captivating, even if he was being, um, you know, uh, aloof or, <laughs> or uh, disagreeing with it. Uh, I felt like there was always thought in what he was saying, either even if the thought was uh, <laughs> um, something targeted, maybe uh, a little sure. bit subliminal messaging through the media, but it was uh he was a complex man and uh but i always felt like there was some there was a genuine understanding and i and i got that feel from uh, my friends in the la media too that you know that they appreciated him it wasn't just a star just going through the motions there was actual 
of thought to what he did and you know even hear about him talk about it now that that's that's that was a big part of why he did the the helicopter because he knew he had responsibilities after practice that would Mm -hmm. keep him there for a while but he still wanted to make it to his kids before we move on and return to paul's memories of kobe bryant a reminder to subscribe to our show and hit that button on whatever platform you're listening to keep up with us monday through friday here at locked on suns Today's show also sponsored by MyBookie. Are you the type of fan that knows football so well that you could choose any single game and call it? Well, MyBookie is the place for you because they let you turn all your sports knowledge into cash in your wallet. Between football season, the end of it here, NBA, and conference play and college basketball going on, it's time to get off of the sideline and get in on the action with MyBookie. If you're the kind of person who likes to bet a little and win a lot, maybe try a parlay. For instance, maybe a couple of the big favorites in college basketball stand out to you and you maybe have some ideas about the big game on Sunday. Parlays can be perfect because they let you bet multiple games all together and earn a much bigger payout. If you're tired of watching games from the couch with nothing to gain and the boring routine of of just sitting there, MyBookie wants to get your mind off of everything else. And back to the games. If you win right now, if you join right now, sorry, MyBookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000. That means if you deposit $2,000, you get an extra $1,000 in free money to play with. Just use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA to activate the offer. Once again, that's promo code LOCKEDONNBA to take advantage of MyBookie's generous sign-up offer. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, and you get paid. I think the two moments we can go chronologically. You you named the two. I think any Suns fans that that follow the team during the seven seconds or less days will 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 have their minds go the same place. The Raja Bell clothesline in, in Game Five of the twenty two thousand six the first round series between these two teams. Uh, I mean, and and the, that entire series to see. I think it's it's just it's always been kind of crazy to me that the Spurs were really the team that the Suns couldn't get over the hump against, despite the Lakers being so, you know, just flashy and, and their championship pedigree being so famous, you know, that was the, they caught the Lakers at a good point, relatively speaking. But this series was one where I think the, the Suns did kind of see the, the power of Kobe and, and Raja just getting fed up in game five and clotheslining him. What's funny to go back and look here is the Suns were up 14, and it's almost halfway through the fourth quarter when this happened, so it wasn't even necessary, so to speak. But what do you remember from that play, that that night, and just that series? Yeah, that, that was an interesting window in the whole Suns-Lakers history because it's been obviously dominated by the Lakers for most of the decade. But that window, the Suns were starting to get control, and you know, the arena would always turn into overwhelmingly Lakers fans for all the good Lakers years. But at that time, some pandemonium was at its peak and people were jumping off the Lakers bandwagon a little bit because they weren't as good. And heading into that postseason, the Suns, if you remember, there was the last game of the regular season, the Suns held out Nash and Raja Bell in a game because they wanted to play the Lakers instead of Sacramento in the first round. They never acknowledged it, but it was pretty much well-known at the time. And that ticked off Kobe, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the competitor in a big time. 
um, yeah, so that that set up kind of already. I mean, it's our, always a tenuous thing, and then the animosity is kind of set from the beginning. And like you mentioned, the thing about the clothesline that is most striking is this the point in the game it was. We are all, you know, it was kind of a well in the hand when you're a reporter. You're you're starting to work on your game story at that point because mm-hmm. it's a blowout, and you're kind of casually, you know, keeping an eye on things, but trying to work on your story, and then all of a sudden that happens. And you're, and you're just jaw drops and it's, uh, but it was a very measured move. It was, you know, Raja, Raja was doing that basically out of his own frustration because uh, Phil Jackson had been poking him kind of during the game. And like, cause Raja kept getting upset with taking elbows and stuff from Kobe, the high ones. And, and at some point, Phil Jackson had said, like, according to Raja, that he had deserved it. And that ticked off Raja, and now you know how Raja Bell was. He, it didn't take much for him to, to uh, be at a, a boiling point, and so he was looking for that moment. And even you know, it was, it was not a smart move in the scope of the whole series. You know, like, I mean, in the end, maybe it becomes a rallying cry, and is why they still were able to to win the series. But to lose a key player and their best defender on Kobe going to a road game at LA that that could have closed it out was was not not ideal for uh, Mike D'Antoni um, but he got under Kobe's skin too and you know one of the things I remember most was kind of the fallout of that game and the comments and uh, Kobe was so good <laughs> with I mean Roger was pretty good obviously really good and with media but Kobe was was uh really sticking knives in Raja because he was calling him a kid saying he, I, he didn't know who he was and <laughs> that he had bigger fish to fry. Said he, he, he said he wasn't, maybe wasn't hugged enough as a kid. Yeah. 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 And I remember going like anytime there was those kind of statements, I remember getting to be the one that goes back to Raja <laughs> and says, Hey, did you hear what Kobe said? And you know, Raja would be like at his locker, you know, he, putting on his shoes or lacing up or doing something without necessarily his eyes on me. And all of a sudden his head would raise and he'd be like, he said that. (laughs) And, you know, like the fuel was all there again. And I think it was so funny too, that he, the game, he was suspended. And, you know, when you're suspended, you can't even be in the building. He didn't stay in the hotel. He went to a restaurant in Beverly Hills and watched the game at a bar full of Lakers fans. (laughs) And this is Raja Bell. It's not like he's persona, you know, he's not unrecognized. He's persona non grata there. And he did have a security guy with him. But And then the whole scene where after they win, I remember seeing video of them meeting at the airport. And he was so happy, like, because basically his team had bailed him out. <laughs> yeah. What, what I think is incredible, too, Paul, about this this whole series in general back in 2006 was just the way it ended, too. Not like game five with the Raja's that with Kobe, but also Kobe stopped shooting overall in game seven and they lost by 31 points from 90 against the Suns. Just what do you remember from that game seven when Kobe stopped shooting the ball, but also that whole series in general? Yeah, I just remember, like, there was kind of all always this undertone from the whole Lakers season that Kobe was unhappy with how things were going. And, and as that series started to deteriorate, uh, and then that game, when sun, once the Suns got under control, and I think that, you know, if I remember right, that's kind of the thing that Phil Jackson was asking 
publicly of Kobe. And it was kind of like, all right, you want me to be more of a distributor? That's what it felt like. Like, all right, I'm going to, I'll show you. Here's, here's what it's like if I don't, don't shoot. And I just look to set up guys. And it, it just seemed obvious to all of us watching at the time that he was making a pointed message about not being as aggressive because that's just not who Mamba was. I wanted to read. So Raja Bell, he's actually the director of player administration or, or something like that with the Cavs now, which I, I didn't realize. I know he had a radio show and I think he got hired last year by Cleveland, but uh, he, he went on CBS where he used to do the radio show and spoke about Kobe. And I thought this quote was just cool to, to, to think back on these, this battle, but he said it was always a pleasure and always a level of excitement on my part. And I'd like to think that the fact that I competed scrapped and clawed with him, even when I had limited success guarding him, that there was a level of respect that he had just for that effort. So we got to a place that when we played, there was a mutual respect. I certainly had a lot of respect for him. And then he said he was, he's at a loss for, for real words to eloquently describe the, the loss. But uh, do you, I mean, Kobe was the kind of guy who he was going to respect a Raja who pissed him off more than he's going to respect the guy who, who the, the other team has to avoid putting on him. Right. He's, he, he loved the guy. Like you see the video actually, of the clothesline, when Kobe's on the ground, he smiles. He's yeah, laughing. He doesn't pop up and throw a punch or you know something like that. He loved it. So yeah. I was like, oh, all right, this is fun. This is challenging me. Yeah, okay, let's go. Uh, yeah, I think he admired the competitor in Rajabelle, and you know, years at that point, you know, there there was some burgeoning things from before that. You know, when he was with the Jazz, um, so it wasn't like it was a brand new thing, but. Um, and, you know, they saw each other less when Roger was the Sixers. But, um, you know, at that point, it was the head-to-head was growing because now Roger was a starter. And they're seeing each other all the time. And he's the Kobe stopper who checks in and out and sees him all the time. So then over the a course of time with that, Kobe grew so much respect for him that he got, recruited him to L.A. You know, he was the one that was asking, get me Roger Bell on my team. He, he wanted that type of player with him. Yeah, I really think overall as well, when you look at this, these playoff battles over the years, Paul, 2006, 2007, 2010, what do you remember most just about those three years? Because obviously the Rajah Bell closed line, that series with Kobe stopped shooting in 06, but he had an 07 year after that, 2010. Just so many uh, incredible years of these Suns and Lakers teams battling with Kobe headlining up. The, the 2010 just seems to be like quintessential Kobe. Like, I don't know if there's a more defining clip than the buzzer shot um, of the game that he put, had put in overtime and then then won it off the jump ball tip um, with the clenched fist because, I mean, it just defines everything about his cool and clutchness that it was just a pandemonium moment between, like, the turnover score that sent it to overtime and then that, getting that off a jump ball and and double teamed and the and the everybody swarming on him and him just standing there with the clenched the clenched fist in the air as everybody else goes crazy around him but you know it was just the shot he practices all the time and I still I still to this day say like if if uh, Boris hadn't tried to double on that I think Boris got in Rajabelle's way I think Raja had him and Boris stepping up on the double almost screamed Raja 
for Kobe to get the shot off a lot more cleanly. But, uh, I mean, he was doing what he was supposed to do, but it kind of turned into a double. But he was he was just – that game was emblematic of how undefendable a lot of his shots were. He just – he was undenied about getting to the spots on the floor where he want because he just practiced them more than anybody. I remember that in that conference final – there was in that clinching game where he was spectacular again, he just dominated him that, uh, well, I guess I, I'm sorry, before I was talking about the 06 stuff, but in, in 10, uh, when he was closing out the, the series, there was a point where he was double teamed and he made a shot cause he was just on fire in that second half. And uh, Alvin Gentry, he was right in front of Alvin Gentry, and he just like threw up his hands in the air right in front of him. Like, what else can we do? You know, two guys, probably Grant Hill is probably one of them, are all over you, and you just make the shot anyway. There's, we're not going to stop you, and we're not going to win. Another break to tell you about the other sponsor of today's show, which is the Arizona Office of Tourism and the Cactus League. This spring, fall your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training between amazing weather and landscapes. Exciting outdoor adventures and incredible food, Arizona is the perfect home for baseball fans. Follow your favorite baseball teams to the Valley, all within 50 miles of one another. You have 15 MLB teams in 10 different stadiums, so you can go to a couple games in one day. You can make it a a long weekend, see a whole bunch of different teams, see prospects that you won't see anywhere else, get autographs and meet the players, take part in all the festivities going on around it. There's live music, there's restaurants, there's... Uh, plenty to do all around all of the facilities throughout the valley and they're all as i said just a short drive from one another if you want to make the trip even bigger take advantage of some of the bucket list items in arizona whether that's grand canyon monument valley horseshoe bend even meteor crater they're all really just a few hours drive at the max if you need to bring the kids along or kids want to come arizona is a fantastic destination for families as well between family-friendly resorts hotels museums, wildlife parks, aquariums, a whole ton to do for the little ones as well. So to catch up on all of the amazing prospects and amazing teams as they get ready for the 2020 MLB season, come to the Cactus League to, to plan your spring training getaway. Visit visitarizona.com slash spring training. Again, that is visitarizona.com slash spring training. Yeah, to give the stats from that series, uh, Kobe averaged 33.7 points, 7.2 rebounds, 8.3 assists per game in that six-game series that ended with Ron Artest's shot. Um, okay, actually, to, 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 to rewind a moment, and then we can get into 2010, but one of the yeah i I blurred the years there for a second on you sorry (laughs) no you're you're fine i I get it that's kind of that's kind of the the crazy part of all this but do you think so one of the debates that came back to me when look researching all this and, and getting ready for this episode with you was the 20 the 2006 mvp award where kobe finishes fourth but actually second in first place votes and i know a lot of people look back at that one for Nash. There wasn't a great, there wasn't a great case for any one player, and but a lot of people I think seem to think, uh, in retrospect, Kobe should have gotten it. What do you remember about that uh, MVP race? Did you have a vote then, and who did you vote for? And uh, and just what do you do you buy that Kobe maybe should have had it over Nash that that second Nash MVP? 
Wow, you're really challenging my memory. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I did have a vote. Um, you know, sometimes you well, I can't positively say I had an MVP vote both years because sometimes you would you would get certain categories and uh, you wouldn't necessarily get all of them. So I can't definitively say that. Um, but I do remember Kobe. You know, it was clear that Kobe was bent about it. Um, uh, just as Shaq was <laughs> uh, uh, the year before. And I thought Nash was more deserving the 0506 year. Um, I, I would have to look back at the numbers, but I remember feeling that way at the time. Like the first year, you know, it was more like rewarding the change of the whole franchise. But the things he did in the 056 year, I thought were supreme. Maybe. Maybe it was, uh, I don't remember if both years were 50, 40, 90 or not, but I just, I just remember feeling because of the circumstances and everything, maybe it's because the roster changed a little bit. You know, they didn't have Joe anymore um, going through injury losses and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely something that bent Kobe. That was clear. Just going through all this information and looking back on the history of this rivalry between the Suns and the Lakers, Paul, it's just shocking and not really shocking, really just surprising how much of this revolves around Kobe Bryant, how much he's in the middle of this. Just how much did Kobe help create this rivalry in the first place between the Suns and the Lakers? Because it just seems like it all comes back to him. Yeah, I mean, the rivalry was already there. I mean, the, from the beginning of the 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 franchise i think there was a, a geographic thing and you know i, I say it's a rival but it's, i always say it's hard to call things a rivalry when it's one-sided and it probably didn't really feel as much like a rivalry until maybe that era when the sun started getting over on them um but throughout the years it had been and i think the kobe layers to it were just you know looking back and thinking they were interested in him in the draft if they hadn't traded up. In the in 2004 free agency, they were interested in him before they signed Nash. There was just all these extra elements. There was It was just amazing how many tie-ins there were because, you know, Kobe growing up in Italy with his father playing with Mike D'Antoni. And, and part of the reason why he liked eight was because Mike D'Antoni wore eight when he was a kid and watching him in Milan. And, you know, the, the depth of all the layers was incredible. Um, and that, but, you know, I think he just became the guy to hate because of the way he carried himself. It was already a hated franchise, but he became the target. You know, Shaq was kind of a likable uh, villain. Kobe, Kobe was never a likable villain. What's funny when you go through the, the myriad connections there too, Paul, is the way it all came full circle, you know, later with Mike coaching Kobe in LA and, and Nash joining them for that one season. And obviously did not, did not ultimately go so well for those, that, that trio, but just crazy to, to kind of see how many different times they all intersected and, and whether it was on the court or off the court and, and all of that. And I, I got the famous quote here from Kobe, I think heading into the 2010 series, the 2010 Western conference finals uh, asked if, asked about going up against Phoenix again after it had been three years and Kobe had won 
a title the year before and, and kind of reclaimed his, his place in the game, won an MVP award one of those seasons as well, said, I don't like them. I don't like them. It's plain and simple. I do not like them. They used to whip us pretty good, and they used to let us know about it, and I will not forget that. What, what do you yeah. – because they only and played each other three times. That was that the 2010 conference you said that quote from? Yeah, that's when he said it. And right after I think they won the second round series, then they knew they were going to be playing Phoenix. That was his response to it. Yeah, and I think Suns fans like that. I think, you know, like as much as you want to hate him, I think they love to know that he cared as much as they did. And then I remember in his final uh, game in Phoenix, he had a press conference and he kind of reiterated some of those feelings about how the Suns, you know, got in his way a couple of times and what it meant to him to play against them and the, and the great players and everything. And um, he, I think he just, he kind of fed into the whole thing by, he was such a uh, aficionado and appreciative guy of the game that uh, it wasn't like he just dismissed it. I think a lot of superstars wouldn't acknowledge uh, that sort of thing, especially, you know, at his level, you know, they've, they've had bigger rivalries. NBA Finals rivalries, and and uh, he always acknowledged the part with Phoenix, and you know it became such a familiar thing from the amount of games they played each year and the postseasons that there were actually Suns personnel, uh, you know, like the Vice President of Media Relations, Julie Fye, where he was leaving the arena for the final time, and he stopped and talked to her and smiled and gave her a hug because, and you know that's the the layers of over the years we had become so thick yeah it it is just I mean I think that's what anyone who who is absorbed and, and consumed the the coverage of all this if you didn't know it already the the tentacles that he had over the entire league it's just been crazy too I mean I mentioned Booker earlier and they obviously had a, a little bit more of a relationship and Book was in the league when Kobe was at the end there, but some of these guys who are even younger than Booker or have been in the league for less time, at least the, the relationships they had, whether it's Trey young or Jason Tatum or, or any of these guys, it's, it's just crazy to see that, you know, the advocacy that he started to do for the game, for, for the league, for the Lakers after retirement that you alluded to before Paul and um, just the legacy he was continuing to build. And, and obviously I think he had a little bit of, what Suns fans might relate to is a little bit of goodwill to, to earn back from the, the ugliness with the com- competitive spirit and everything that he, that got the best of him at times. But uh, it is just, it's, it's crazy when you see that he, uh, a random, well, not random, but a, a vice president of communications is, is somebody he shares a moment with just because of how uh, connected he was around the game. But I, what I wanted to close with was your, you were also there, if I'm remembering correctly, for his final season, and you talked about the press conference he gave. What do you remember from that year, the emotions about him leaving, going through each city one last time, giving his kind of farewell tour speeches in each stop, and, and just what that season was like? Yeah, I think probably the two things that pop out to me from that was, of course, the game there, but the, the interaction with Book uh, that last night, um, you know, Obviously, that's been brought up again with the be legendary message he sent to him by signing his game shoes and giving them to him and he, a game program. Um, but the coolest part of that was the way Kobe talked in such like old man admiration about like I remember Devin open 
the game, you know, they're head to head. And the first time Kobe's cover, a book did a Kobe move on him. And he, and he was like, use my move on me. But he thought it was so cool that, you know, like that he had done that, you know, that he had, cause he had already had admired him. And, and that, cause that's how he looked up to MJ. And now here was this young kid that looked at Kobe in the same way that he looked at MJ. So that was, that was a really cool night. And then, uh, you know, a, a night that he wasn't even in the building, the, his final game when he had 60, the Suns were playing that night too. And the Suns game ended earlier than the Lakers game. And I remember being in the locker room and then all of a sudden I didn't know where everybody was and I could hear the noise and all the, like all the players, it seemed like all the players, half the players or whatever and staff, were crammed into the video room to watch what he was doing at Staples that night. Cause it had just that fourth quarter stuff had just started to build and build and build. And all of a sudden nobody cared about getting dressed or, you know, going to see their girlfriends or wives that were waiting. I probably blew deadline that night because I wanted to see what was going on. We, we were all in there. Uh, Brent Burchard was the, I think the video coordinator at the time. He's now the head coach at, for Northern Arizona. Yeah. And he was the most popular guy in the, in the arena that night. Cause he had the, he had the game on. <laughs> Paul. Hey, this is really fun. Appreciate the time as always. I know, uh, Brennan and myself are big admirers of your work here. I, I'm glad to finally have you on the show here. I appreciate it a lot. And, uh, yeah, it's, I, I'm at DCU now with Dan Marley and we've spent a lot of time the last couple of days talking about this subject and it's, it resonated with him in a big way too, because he played against them for five years. And, uh, you know, he, he's gone through those moments as a father uh, that made him think about that too. He, he talked about being on a plane one time that he took his daughters where there was bad turbulence and having the kind of thoughts that he thought Kobe must've had that mm-hmm. night. He would, he just marveled at, at him as a player and tries to tell his players all the time to have that Mamba mentality. Yeah, Kobe versus his sons was definitely one of the the big chapters of this Phoenix Suns history. We'll look back on it. And thanks again, Paul, for coming to the show. That'll do it for today's episode of Locked on Suns. Appreciate everyone listening. And as always, we'll be back to guests tomorrow for next episode.